electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on Squawk Pod, an extended interview with billionaire and private equity legend, Carlyle Group co-founder David Rubenstein. I think the greatest fortunes are made when people go against conventional wisdom. We're exploring those big risky bets for David and his investing cohort, plus today's best bets. And who's deciding them? It isn't people in their 70s who say, let's go into personal computers. It's people in their 20s that really make trends happen. And right now, it's the crypto people. Rubenstein's crypto, healthcare, and market bottom bets. Plus, tax evasion at MicroStrategy and unpacking stress abroad, China's latest lockdown. This really underscores just the fragility that it can, a lockdown with a zero COVID policy can happen at a moment's notice. It's Thursday, September 1st. Our supersized Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back, you buy in three, two, one, kill please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Ms. Melissa Lee. Joe and Andrew are both off today, but Melissa and I are here. We'll get you through this this morning. And at this point, the Dow is off by 14.7%. The S&P off by close to 18%, and then the NASDAQ down by more than 26.5%. Those are the declines from the highs. So you had a really strong six weeks, maybe longer than that. The first couple of weeks of the month were really strong, too, but the last two weeks were enough to lose all of that and then some. Yeah, and, and the notable thing about August and the price action that we saw in August was that it was a sell-off across assets. So it was a cross-asset sell-off. It was terrible for treasuries. It was terrible for, for gold. For gold, for, for commodities, um, as well as for equity. So that was interesting. The correlations are very high these days. Yeah, so all of the watching those things, I think the two-year yield, actually the highest since we've seen November 2007. A lot of talk out of Jackson Hole. That is going to be raising rates significantly, and I think the market is paying attention to that at this we point. We actually went over 3.5% in yesterday's session. And, and con- think about where we were one year ago. A year ago yesterday, we were at 0.13%. Wow. So we've gone to three and a half in 12 months. That is really rapid fire. Rapid fire. And uh, markets don't like that. We've got a developing story. The city of Chengdu announcing a lockdown of its 21.2 million residents as it launched four days of citywide COVID testing. It is the largest city to be locked down since the COVID crackdown in Shanghai earlier this year. In just the last hour, media reports in Sweden said Volvo will shut down its plant in Chengdu because of the restrictions. The implications, though, are, are pretty deep if you think about the percentage of GDP for China, 1.7% of GDP is, is from Chengdu. Right. Foxconn makes iPads in this region. I, Intel I think, has facilities. I mean, it's it's widespread. We're going to talk to Yunus Yun coming up. It sounds like they will allow those factories to continue to operate if they are fully, um, if they're factories where people live and work at the same time. But to shut down a city of 21 million, put that in reference with New York, who has about 8 million citizens, 21 million people over 700 cases. And yeah, there's no signs that any of this is letting up in terms of those lockdowns. And we don't know what that's going to mean for the supply chain. Any of these supply chain issues that have been here 
aren't going to go away when you continue to have lockdowns coming out of China. Just when we were starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel in terms of what companies have been saying on their conference calls, things have been improving in terms of the supply chain. This really underscores just the fragility that it can a lockdown with a zero COVID policy can happen at a moment's notice. Well, and it also talks about how frustrating it must be for the central banks around the globe because they are dealing with very blunt instruments to try and fix what has been not a demand problem, but a supply issue, cha supply right. chain issue. They can't fix those things. They can only bluntly curb demand. And if you're going to have these continuous problems coming in the supply chain, it's got to be very frustrating to figure out how you're going to get around and, and fight inflation in a better way. And Eunice Yoon joins us now with the latest. Eunice, good morning. Good morning. Uh, the southwestern city of Chengdu has just imposed its stay-at-home order about 40 minutes ago for its 21 million residents. Uh, the city is an industrial base it, uh, for uh, big multinational companies like Toyota, Intel, as well as Apple supplier Foxconn. Foxconn actually produces iPads in that area. Um, the um, city also accounts for 1.7 percent of Chinese GDP. Now, the Chengdu authorities have said that uh, they will allow factories to operate as long as they are in a closed-loop system, which means that workers have to live and work on the premises. Now, this uh, Chengdu lockdown is the latest in a series of COVID controls uh, for factory hubs as well as ports. Uh, the port city of Dalian is imposing uh, targeted lockdowns. Uh, residents in the factory hub Shenzhen are urging, being urged not to leave the city. Uh, port city Tianjin, which is uh, nearby Beijing, has undergone four mass testing rounds since this weekend, and it looks as though it's going to continue. This is all coming at a very, very sensitive time for Beijing when the leadership is expected to gather here in the capital about six weeks from now, and they're going to be deciding who is going to be in power. Uh, the expectation, of course, is that President Xi Jinping is going to be taking a precedent uh, setting a third term for at least another five years. Um, and the authorities are prioritizing stability. So uh, they do not want anything, including major outbreaks, to uh, become a disruption for that political gathering. Uh, these lockdowns are also coming at a, a time when the economy is uh, in a tough spot, um, not only because of the struggling property sector and uh, because of the poor consumption that we're seeing here, but also now uh, factory activity. In fact, the PMI, from a private survey, the Caixin PMI, showed that manufacturing shrunk in August at 49.5. Uh, that is um, similar to what we saw with the official uh, PMI as well. We did have some good news, though, on the COVID front, because I don't want to be totally down all the time. Um, but uh, Hong Kong um, has said that they are going to now um, play with the idea of a reverse quarantine, that they got early support uh, to allow uh, anybody who's interested in coming to travel on business to China to potentially isolate and quarantine in Hong Kong first and then enter quarantine free onto the mainland, which um, would be a pretty big deal because it's not something that we've seen so far. Uh, Eunice, what's your understanding of the, the factories in the area? You mentioned Toyota, Intel, Foxconn makes iPads in the area um, and their ability to continue manufacturing uh, at this point. Uh, well, I think that just as we've seen in other cities, um, the uh, Chengdu authorities said that they would be allowing these closed loop systems. So that is actually a good thing because in theory, these factories will be able to operate. They just need to make sure that their workers are going to stay on site and uh, live and work there. Don't know how long, but at least they could stay open. The problem, though, we have seen 
across the country is that even when these factories are open, they can't necessarily source things because there might be trouble in other places within the country. So they, if, if they don't get the right materials, then they can't actually produce it well. And then also um, so the southwestern Chengdu, they've been dealing with power cuts. They've had a drought. They're uh, dealing with a whole host of other issues right now. And truckers, too, have been um, in short supply. So it's really challenging right now for these factories, although at least in theory, they will be able to operate. Hey, Eunice, we keep hearing that, that things are getting better in the supply chain. At least that's what we hear on some conference calls. What, what do you hear? What do you see there? I think it, it really depends on the industry and um, the moment. So I think that, um, for example, um, even in Chengdu, a couple of Weeks ago, people would be more concerned about the power cuts and thinking that things were improving because the temperatures were starting to come down and it looked as though the, the power rationing wasn't going to be such a big deal. Um, but then now we have this, this outbreak, um, which is only several hundred cases, but it's been on the rise. And so uh, suddenly the whole city is, is in lockdown. And, and, you know, so that's going to suddenly impact uh, the factories there. So it's 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 really kind of difficult to tell um, what the, uh, situ how the situation is going to be. All right, Eunice, thank you. Eunice Yoon in Beijing with the latest on the, uh, on the COVID lockdown in Chengdu. MicroStrategy Executive Chairman Michael Saylor is being accused of evading $25 million in taxes. That is according to a lawsuit filed by the District of Columbia Attorney General yesterday. The suit also alleges that MicroStrategy conspired to help Saylor avoid paying taxes. Saylor stepped down as CEO last month. Under his leadership, MicroStrategy spent close to $4 billion acquiring Bitcoin at an average price of around $30,000. Bitcoin today is around $20,000. Uh, the suit accuses Saylor of claiming to reside in Virginia or Florida, which have lower or no personal income tax rates. But it claims Saylor actually lived in several different homes around D.C., including a penthouse apartment in the Georgetown neighborhood or on his yacht on the Georgetown waterfront or Potomac River while his apartment was being renovated. The lawsuit includes several screenshots of posts that appear to be from Saylor's Facebook page referencing the view from his Georgetown balcony. I actually read the, um, the, the document this morning, the lawsuit. I think it's about 16 pages. From the pictures they got from his Facebook where he was saying, on my way into work, and this is the view from my apartment, that didn't seem to be quite as compelling as the case they made against MicroStrategy itself. They said that the CFO at the time counted the number of days that Saylor was in D.C. versus these other places and said, we're not going to be able to continue to pay you and, claim, and, and send these, this to your supposed address in Florida. That would put the company in a position of peril. As a result, he cut his compensation to a dollar but he was still taking a lot of um, benefits from the company, including use of the private plane that uh, totaled more than a million dollars. Just what they seemed to have from the CFO at that point seemed to be the most damning things in this, where the CFO said, we can't do this, and Saylor changed his compensation as a result. So I, I don't know how this will play out in court, but what was filed against him and these charges against him that I read this morning, that is going to be the more difficult thing to get around. You can say this was just a Facebook post and I wasn't actually living right, there. Right. You know, it could have been posted from anywhere, really. Right. And, and, or if this is your yacht and it's in the river, is, is it really on the Georgetown waterfront or, or is it in Virginia? Because, you know, the right. river there is on both sides. Right. So I, it, it, none of that was as compelling as this evidence they have from 
I don't know if it's testimony they have from the CFO or if these are documents that they found, but that is going to be the more tricky part. They said it was more than $25 million, but they are also looking for treble damages in a situation like that. So it's, it's fairly significant, and we'll wait to see what evidence they actually have um, from the company and from the CFO and how he counters that. Yeah, I mean, if, if the CFO, it. if these statements, whether they were made by email or deposition or whatnot, um, were simply a warning. Could be. Then, yeah. then it's a different then story. It's a different but that, story. But, but looking it through it, the, the, the stuff in the, that they found in Facebook, I was like, ah, that, that it couldn't, yeah. doesn't necessarily prove your case, particularly if you're saying I was there sometimes and I was in other places other times. It's going to be what they have from the company. However, they got that, that is going to be what this probably hinges. Unless they're just looking for a settlement and all this stuff is eye candy to catch the media's attention so we can play the story over and over again, show pictures of the yacht, and MicroStrategy comes and says we'll pay a fine. We'll see. But we'll see. We'll see. Next on Squawk Pod, we're challenging conventional wisdom with private equity billionaire David Rubenstein. The conventional wisdom today is that we're probably teetering near a recession. We might go into one, we might not. The Fed will increase interest rates by another 150 to 200 basis points between now and the end of the year, and that probably you should uh, be nervous about the equity upside. A mega interview spanning market risks in China, fears of recession here at home, and so much more. And it all starts right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. This is Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC, live from the NASDAQ market side in Times Square. I'm Melissa Lee along with Becky Quick this morning. Joe and Andrew are obviously not here, but... We're glad to be here with you. <laughs> we have a special guest with us for the next half hour. Let's welcome billionaire investor and philanthropist David Rubenstein. He is Carlyle Group's co-founder and co-chairman, and uh, he has a new book out next month. It's called How to Invest Masters on the Craft. He interviewed lots of Wall Street luminaries for the book, including names we know pretty well around here. Larry Fink, Ron Barron, Mary Erdos, just to name a few. We've got Ray Dalio, Stan Druckenmiller, John Rogers. These are all people we know pretty well, too. But, David, I think this is particularly interesting to have you speaking to these investors because you do this for a living and you do it pretty well. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I had a chance to meet with these people over the course of the last year or so, and a lot, some of the interviews had to be done virtually because of COVID. And I know a lot of them, and I've done some work with them, but uh, I had the chance to go back and talk about their backgrounds with them, what made them tick, and try to figure out what it is that makes somebody a great investor versus an average investor. What did you find? Well, uh, they are generally from nice families. They are not from the poverty-stricken families. They tend to not be Horatio Alger stories. They tend to come from middle-class families, good in math, pretty good students, uh, 
obviously like to read, like to be in control, like to make the final decision, and they go against conventional wisdom. They're really willing to go against conventional wisdom, which is what makes them great, because if you went with conventional wisdom, you'd presumably be like everybody else. So going against conventional wisdom, what are some examples of that? Maybe where they zigged, where everybody else zagged that put them in the pole well, position? Well, John Paulson made a famous trade where he kind of went against what a lot of people thought was possible to do with the big mortgage uh, trade, a short, and he made roughly $20 billion on that. That's unusual. Um, Mike Novogratz got into crypto very early when people thought that was terrible. He made a lot of money in that. It's obviously come down, but he still made a lot of money and still holds a lot of crypto. Um, so those are good examples of people going against conventional wisdom. What, what's an example where you went against conventional wisdom and it served you well? Well, um, I started a private equity firm in Washington, D.C. People said you can't start a private equity firm in Washington because Washington is the, a government city. And I uh, made it work uh, with the help of a lot of others. What, what's the secret if you're investing in Washington? It, you know, if you're not following the lobbyist, what, what does make the difference? Why is it good to be there? Well, in Washington, we, well, because we started in Washington, we were able to say correctly, I think we understand companies heavily affected by government. So aerospace defense companies or telecommunications companies, maybe we had a better understanding of those than people maybe in New York did. At least that what we said and think it was probably true. What about habits of successful investors? Anything all of these people have in common? Yes, they're workaholics. Um, there's nobody <laughs> nine to five just uh, kind of coming in late, leaving early. No, these are workaholics. And for these people, investing is not work, it's pleasure. Um, these people love what they're doing and if they weren't making the, lot of, the enormous amounts of money that they were they're making, they'd still do it. This is not something that they really, at this point, need the money for. When you're worth $10 billion or $20 billion, you don't need to go in and, and, and work this hard, but they do because they love it. Uh, you mentioned going against the grain, going against conventional wisdom. What do you think the conventional wisdom is uh, today in this economic backdrop? And what would going against the grain be in your view? Well, the conventional wisdom today, and remember, John Kenneth Galbraith famously once said, uh, conventional wisdom is almost always wrong. But the conventional wisdom today is that we're probably teetering near a recession. We might go into one, we might not. The Fed will increase interest rates by another 150 to 200 basis points between, between now and the end of the year. And that probably you should uh, be nervous about the equity upside. There's not likely to be a lot of equity upside in technology stocks or crypto or things like that. That would be the conventional wisdom. So if you're now bullish on crypto or you're bullish on technology, uh, now is the time to get in. And maybe a year from now, you'll look very smart. Are you? bullish on crypto or technology? I am bullish in the sense that I think the greatest fortunes are made when people go against conventional wisdom. Now, who knows where crypto is going to be, but right now crypto has been beaten down dramatically. Probably if you go into this and not just crypto itself, but uh, I've invested personally in the uh, uh, companies that surround the industry, not just the cryptocurrencies themselves, but companies that service the industry. You mean like the Coinbase's? Those type of companies. They, they have not actually um, done that well lately. They've been hurt by crypto uh, decline. But in time, I think the industry is not going away. Members of Congress are not going to push to regulate this industry unduly, in my view. Uh, the crypto uh, constituency is very strong in Congress. They tend to be very Republican, very libertarian, and very willing to spend money on lobbying. I interviewed somebody the other day, Sam Bankman-Fried, who you probably have interviewed as well. And, you know, he spends a fair amount of time in Washington, puts a fair amount of money into political uh, contributions. And I, I just think the industry is not likely to 
uh, be soft uh, in terms of its uh, dealing with members of Congress. They're going to be fairly aggressive, and I think members of Congress are probably going to react by not pushing the regulators to do more than they're already doing. Is that the secret to investing in Washington, though, just following the lobbying dollars, following where, I mean, is cash king in a situation where you're aggressive, you're aggressive well, as an industry, not the you only push your thing. views? Take, take aerospace defense. Uh, the defense budget, people have been saying for the last 25 or 30 years, is too high. But it keeps going up, and probably it's a pretty good bet that it's probably going to keep going up. Sam Bankman-Fried scooped up a lot of uh, companies during this deep, deep crypto winter. Were you along for the ride? Was that was that an opportunity that you saw? I, I'm not an investor in the things that he did, but he did okay. put a lot of money in, called by some the J.P. Morgan of the crypto world, right. because he put a lot of money in. Some of those bets, he says, won't probably pay off, but some will. And he was trying to shore up the industry a bit, and I think he did a pretty good job in it. Yeah. So what are you, so the kinds of companies, when did you invest? I've invested in a company called Paxos, for example. Paxos is a company that uh, services the industry, and I've done this through my family office, not through Carlisle, um, and, and all the investments in my family office are cleared by Carlisle uh, to make sure there's no conflicts. But um, I, I think the industry is not going away, in part because young people tend to have the, the kind of intelligence and, and energy to kind of get trends started. So it isn't people in their 70s who say, let's go into personal computers. It's not people in their 70s who say smartphones are really going to be the thing of the future. It's people in their 20s that really make trends happen. And right now, it's the crypto people who tend to be in their 20s and 30s who are really moving this forward. Now, I recognize the challenges of crypto, and I recognize all the, the, the questions about it. But I do think that some of the blockchain-related investments and things associated with crypto are likely to be with us for quite some time. David, let's talk about Carlisle. What's different about the Carlisle culture? Carlisle culture is a very collaborative culture. It's one that people work together quite collaboratively over the years. We often had co-heads and things. We, we, we tend to like to have what we call a one Carlisle culture. People work together. And uh, that's the culture that I, we, we've uh, started from the beginning, and we want to continue that culture. And I wouldn't say we didn't have it under Q, but I would say that's something that's very important to us. And I think the, the next CEO, or it could be co-CEOs, I don't know, yet we haven't made a decision, uh, we'll, uh, we'll probably continue that culture. So we're going to talk about what you see happening in the markets right now. Okay. Well, clearly the markets have been affected by the Fed's uh, statements at, at, uh, in Wyoming. Uh, I think the market was anticipating that the Fed might give some idea that maybe next year they would reduce interest rates beginning next year. Yeah. I think uh, Jay Powell's statements in, uh, in Wyoming pretty much indicated that for the time being, we don't expect any cut in interest rates. So you can expect an increase in interest rates over the next uh, couple months, probably another 50 basis points in each of the next several meetings of the FOMC. Probably no cut early next year, but probably no big increase either. And I think the markets were depressed by that because like, the markets were anticipating maybe that next year he would say early on we might reverse what we're doing, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Cheese will be next. And there's much more of that interview with David Rubenstein coming up next on Squawk Pod. We're starting with China's latest lockdown. I think the market is going to overreact as it often does to this kind of news. Yes, they've had lockdowns before. The Chinese economy doesn't completely collapse. Um, China has been able to do things that we haven't been able to do to stop the spread of COVID, but this is not going to be helpful to the Chinese economy, but it's not going to make the Chinese economy itself go into recession. Plus, sports teams, recession fears, and much more right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. 
FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Squawk Pod from CNBC, where Becky Quick and Melissa Lee are sitting down in person with David Rubenstein, co-founder and co-chairman of the Carlyle Group. It's a private equity firm with $376 billion in assets under management. So let's get back to it. Here's Becky. We hear this story this morning, Chengdu, a city of 21 million people in China, shutting down because of 700 COVID cases there. This is an industrial city where you have Foxconn operating, you've got Intel, lots of big multinational companies, and a lot of um, manufacturing that's taking place. And I think that this has got to be a pretty big jolt to the markets when you think about these lockdowns continuing, because it's the supply issues that have been causing all of these problems with inflation, not, not, not demand. When the market gets an idea in its head, it runs with it for at least a couple of days. And the market <laughs> right now is saying China is slowing down and Chengdu uh, lockdown is uh, uh, emblematic of that. And therefore, I think the market is going to overreact, as it often does, to this kind of news. Yes, they've had lockdowns before. The Chinese economy doesn't completely collapse. Um, China has been able to do things that we haven't been able to do to stop the spread of COVID. But this is not going to be helpful to the Chinese economy, but it's not going to make the Chinese economy itself go into recession. No, but I, I'm thinking of it from the broader supply chain issue. I mean, the big problem that we have with inflation, at least a, a large part of it, is because of these supply chain issues around the globe. It's, it, it's not a situation where you know, demand is the problem. The Fed has this blunt instrument where they can beat down demand. We can't really fix the supply chains. And when you realize that the supply chains may not be getting better in the near future, that it, could be a problem. It's a too. challenge, there's no doubt. But I, I suspect that tomorrow there'll be some positive news out of China and all of a sudden the markets might react differently. So you can't get too upset by one piece of news out of China any given day, because any given day there's going to be so many different things happening in China. Generally, the markets are feeling uh, the Fed is serious about inflation and serious about getting it down, and therefore they're going to keep interest rates high. And as a result, uh, probably economic growth will be slower than people would like. But it's not clear that we're going into recession. Uh, right now, it's likely that the third quarter numbers will show positive economic growth. So we had negative growth for the first two quarters. I think our indications are probably around 1 to 1.5 percent uh, GDP growth in the third quarter. And that that's the case, it might reduce some of the recession, recession fears that are now in the market. How are you viewing China right now, um, just even in terms of the geopolitical dynamic, the political risks of doing business in China? As I understand it, your, your sixth Asia fund ratcheted down its exposure specifically to China. That was over the summer, you told investors that. So what has changed now? Has things gotten worse? Well, there's no doubt that uh, China is a more complicated place in which to invest than it was a year or two ago. And that probably will continue for a while because of the kind of Chengdu factors, but also uh, the regulatory factors. They will probably ease up in time. And as you know, the regulators are, I think, making progress in getting the Chinese companies to be not delisted in the United States. That's progress. And I, I do think that some of the large companies that are waiting for their IPOs to occur, let's say like uh, ByteDance, are probably going to next year be able to do something more positive in terms of uh, liquefying some of the investments that have already been made. But remember, President Biden has, is the first president to not meet with the president of China in his first year in office for quite some time. And I now know that they're going to be meeting uh, not too long from now for the first time uh, when uh, uh, President Xi finally leaves China. He hasn't left in three years, but I think he'll be meeting with President Biden in Asia not too long from now. But relations between the two countries have gotten worse and worse over the last several years. The relationship is very poor right now. There's no doubt about it. Um, it can't get much worse, uh, short of something uh, 
happening in Taiwan that's more significant than what we already had. Uh, but I think it will get better. We have a good ambassador now for the first time. Nick Burns is there. And I do think that Chinese do not want to go to a war with the United States. They have enough other challenges. So I think the relationship will get better. But right now, it's, it's got some real challenges for sure. There's been an implosion in the property market in China, the real estate sector, which is huge a force in the Chinese economy. There's a, a recession in Europe, basically, with an energy crisis going on. Where are the best opportunities? I mean, are you, are you taking a look at all of these distresses and saying those are places we want to be? Well, whenever uh, markets go down, uh, the most common mistake investors make is they get out. That's the most <laughs> common mistake that people do. When markets are going up, they get in, and they, markets go down, they get out. They, what you should do is the reverse. So when if, if Europe is, goes into a recession, it looks like it's not far from it, uh, probably it's a good time to buy things because prices are depressed. So I don't think people should be that worried about it. Obviously, prices will come back in time, as they always do. You use Europe as an example. Do you, are you investing in Europe right now? Are you? Well, Carlisle is a large investor in Europe, and we've had a big presence here for some time, and we have uh, a lot of activity going on now. So we wouldn't say that, that Europe is a place you should avoid investing in. It's, you just got to recognize that prices probably have to be lower than you would going to pay a year or so ago. Yeah. I, I read a report this morning that suggested that millions of Britons are going to be brought into the poverty level because of the increases in inflation, especially when it comes to energy prices. Um, the government is going to have to step up with tens of billions of pounds in order to prevent. It's, it's very interesting. Uh, many people I ask in Britain is, what would the vote be today if you had a vote on Brexit? Yeah. And most people say it would be roughly the same even though almost everybody in Britain feels that it has hurt Britain, its economy. If Britain hadn't gone forward with Brexit, I think Britain would be in better shape now, but you, you're not going to get a change in the British policy for some time, and Brexit is here to stay. But I, I think some of the problems you just alluded to are problems I think to some extent are caused by Brexit. Although inflation is pretty horrible on the continent, too. A lot of this is just energy, natural gas, and how beholden they've been to Putin. Well, we've underestimated in the West the ability to uh, get Mr. Putin to do things that we want him to do. Uh, we thought the, uh, the sanctions would have a big impact. It hasn't been the case. We thought our um, taking away some of their energy um, usage from Europe would, uh, would affect his ability to, to pay for the war, but it turns out that he's making more money than he ever made before because energy prices are so much higher that he's actually in pretty good shape relative to financing the war. So Europe um, has not been able to figure out how to deal with Putin yet, and clearly the Germany has very dependent on natural gas from, uh, from Russia, and it hasn't really changed. So Europe has got to make a transition from dependence on Russian gas to other kinds of sources, and that's going to take some time. Are you... Um in terms of fundraising and people's willingness to give to private equity, what are you finding right now in terms of investor appetite? And, and are you feeling like you are on the precipice of a great investing opportunity, seeing that it looks like we are in a period of simultaneous tightening around the world uh, and potentially simultaneous recession around, uh, you know, in many developed countries? Well, remember, um, the greatest fortunes are often made in the investment world when think people see prices are down, people run away, and then you can buy things cheaply. Uh, the fundraising market now is a little challenge for all people in private equity because people are coming back for um, new funds more quickly than they used to. It used to be you'd come back like in a presidential campaign every four years, you'd come back and you're nice to your investors, you're nice to your voters. Now people are coming back after one or two years because they're investing much more rapidly and therefore the big investors don't have quite as much money as they used to have. But it's not a, the biggest problem in the world. So is that a yes in terms of sitting, sitting on the precipice of a great investing opportunity? Because things are, are going to come down more, right? I mean, is that the view? When you, if you try to wait for the market to go to the bottom and you hit the bottom and, it, and the bell goes off and says, this is the bottom <laughs> of the market, you're never going to invest. 
you're never going to time the top or the bottom of the market exquisitely well. So if you know what you're doing and you're comfortable in your analysis, you know, if you miss the bottom of the market by 10%, it doesn't really make that much difference. But did June 16th feel like a bottom to you or nearer a bottom? Uh, Probably so, but you never know uh, when the bottom is going to occur. There could be some other events happening in Washington, D.C. or something. So I don't really worry about the bottom or the top. If you know what you're doing and you've done the analysis in time, if you, you, know, you can't just make these investments in private equity and hope that they're going to exit them in six months or three months. These are five-year-plus investments, so we tend to look at things differently than traders. Is the hiring market as strong as it has been? Is it starting to turn? Because you have so many businesses that you can see the, the line on. It's tough to get people to go to work these days, both to show up in the office. That's another big <laughs> challenge. I don't know how you're doing it, but uh, uh, many people... I go I'm in, at Carlisle. Are well, you all back I, to the I, office? I, I, well, we're, we want people to be back in the office, but when I walk through the offices, you don't see as many people there as you used to see. And it's true of other firms that I've talked to as well. People aren't coming back as much as we might would like them to come back. I think that will in time, but Right now, people are staying home and working remotely. And the jobs report we get tomorrow, you don't anticipate that it's going to show any real weakness? Not a big change from where we are now. Um, I think uh, you know, markets will probably be about where we are for a while. But I think uh, early next year, I think by then you'll begin to see, I, I think, some um, improvement in the economy generally. And I think the markets have digested this. They've digested when the markets are, are what Jay Powell is doing. And eventually, I think they'll conclude that prices are down. They're not going to go much lower. And you'll see more money going into investments. What sectors or industries do you see the greatest opportunity right now? Well, healthcare is one of them. When I worked in the White House under President Carter, I think before either of you were born, um, uh, at that time, uh, the GDP of the United States devoted health care was roughly 7%. Now it's about 21, 22%. So it's a gigantic opportunity. And as we all age, uh, we need more health care. And more people have more expectations of better health care than they did 10 or 20, 30 years ago. That's a big sector. And the next, next one is fintech or, and, and crypto-related kinds of things, all things related to making it easier for you to pay for things, get money, borrow money, and so forth. That's another gigantic area in my view. You, you point out that we've gone from 7% of GDP to 21% of GDP when it comes to health care. Amazon just announced it's getting out of its health care issues. We've seen J.P. Morgan, Amazon, and Berkshire say, forget it, we can't fix this mess. Is there any chance we're ever going to get control of health care costs? Well, Amazon got out of that particular health care thing. They bought another um, health care company recently, and they're going to stay in health care because they realize it's an important part of American economy. It's interesting, when people get wealthier, what do they say? I, I'm having a good life, I want to live longer. Well, how do you live longer? Well, you eat better, exercise more, and get better medical treatment. So as people around the world get wealthier, they want to live longer, and you're going to see more and more money going to healthcare, not just in the United States, but around the world. You know what else people do when they get wealthy and they look around? They think, I want to buy a sports team. Are you going to buy the Baltimore <laughs> Orioles? Are you going to buy the Washington Nationals? There's no doubt that uh, I feel that I'm one of the few people in private equity that doesn't own a sports team. All my, my friends in, uh, bought sports teams, and I said, look, your investors are not going to take you seriously by your diverting your attention to their sports teams. But I was wrong. They, they did well when they in their private equity investments, and their sports teams did well. So I, I've looked at it. I, I'm from Baltimore, as you may know. And... Um, I live in the, the nation's capital, so I'm interested in sports. But, you know, in, in my view, I, I should have been a better player than I was. I, I peaked at six or seven years old. At, at, at five or six, I thought I was going to be a professional baseball player. And then I realized at seven or eight that I just wasn't good enough. So peer pressure notwithstanding, I mean, are sports teams a good value right now, in your view? I mean, just the pure investment standpoint of it. And then, and then of course, there's the ego standpoint of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's very difficult to buy a sports team and lose money. Um, it's, some people have done it, but it's very rare. 
Um, generally, you make in baseball and basketball, you make your money when you sell the team. In NFL, uh, you make your money all the time because it's so profitable. But in baseball, you tend to make your money when you sell the team. But some of the teams have gone up in value dramatically. For example, the Red Sox were bought 20 years ago by uh, two individuals, and they've made a great fortune on paper. They're not going to sell, but it's a, it's a very valuable property, and they're now using it to do what I think is going to happen in the future. You're going to see baseball teams, basketball teams, and others combine in one company, and ultimately those companies will go public. And you're going to see more and more of that, these are called platform deals. And people are buying uh, soccer teams in England and their baseball teams and basketball teams, combining them all together, and those companies will go public, which has not been happening before, but it will happen in the next couple of years. So this is a profit-making potential enterprise if you were to get into the Major League Baseball, not something where I think of you as buying the Magna Carta or <laughs> fixing some uh, other piece of Americana. Uh, it's not the highest profitability thing I hope to be doing in my investment career. But, but I do think that it's not something I'm doing to lose money, uh, but if, if I do it, but I, I do think it, it's profitable, but it's, it's down the road. It takes a long time to make money because these, these baseball teams, they don't make as much money as you might expect, and they make their money upon the sale, and there are a lot of challenges in baseball. The, the sport is, uh, has some challenges that football doesn't have, for example, the aging population that attends the games. Would you be interested in, in creating and patching together this sort of platform over time? Because it sounds like you put a lot of, of thought into it. And, and, and it's interesting because this is at a time when sports rights, like the, yeah. the rights to broadcast, et cetera, they're very high. There are so many customers who want these sports rights. Well, they want them because uh, right now, of the 50 most watched TV shows, other than this show, um, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> um, I think 48 of them were, were sports shows because people love to watch sports and they can see the, the action live. And so I think it's a, it's a good thing in the future. Now, uh, I can't say exactly what I'm gonna do, but I would say what I just talked about is going to happen. You'll see a number of teams going public where they'll have two or three teams packaged together in, in so-called platform deals. So who are you talking to? Ted Leonsis, I'm trying to think of other people in Washington who you might be friends with, who you might be talking mm -hmm. about combining things with. He's got well, the Washington Capitals, the Wizards. Yeah, Ted Leonsis is a very talented business person. He's owned the Caps and the Wizards for roughly 20 years, and I know him quite well. And, and uh, it's been reported in the press that I, I do know him, so um, he's a smart guy. So that's not a no, but not you know, a yes. What's your next question? My next question is, we're gonna leave it there. Dave, I okay, wanna right, thank okay. you very much for coming in today. That's the podcast for today. Thank you for sticking with us on this mega episode. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from that TV show right into your ears, follow us here on Squawk Pod wherever you're listening. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.